Pushkin. Hello, hello, my friends. Malcolm Gladwell here. I'm taking a quick break from reporting the next season of Revisionist History to tell you it's December. It's cold, it's dark. You're huddled around the fire, and what do you have to entertain you? Just some crazy person singing jingle bells over and over again. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Jingle all the way. Who wrote that? And the hundredth time you hear that song, you realize we don't want anyone to jingle all the way. At most, jingle some small portion of the way. Best case scenario, don't jingle at all. And by the way, I grew up in Canada. I have been on a one-horse open sleigh. Oh, what fun. It's not. It's freezing. Here at Pushkin, we have such profound sympathy for all of you out there being slowly jingled to death that we've decided to step in. Bring you a little December cheer. Ladies and gentlemen, the first annual Pushkin Holiday Special. Today, I will answer some of your burning questions about revisionist history. You will hear a taste of my hilarious conversation with Conan O'Brien for his podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And you'll hear excerpts from two new Pushkin Industries shows. I am so proud of the work the Pushkin elves have been doing all year, and I want to show it off to you. So shake off your boots and join me by the fire. The first new show from Pushkin that I want to tell you about is Tim Harford's Cautionary Tales. Tim writes for the Financial Times, where he's known as the undercover economist. He's a genius at telling stories that illuminate our world. And in Cautionary Tales, he takes on stories of disasters and mistakes and asks what we can learn from them. In bringing those stories to life, we brought in a whole cast of great actors, including Alan Cumming, who you're about to hear in the role of an authority figure who's not what he seems. Here's Tim Harford. There may be times and places where it's a good idea to talk back to a military officer, but Germany, in 1906, isn't one of them. So the young corporal doesn't. The corporal, let's call him Corporal Muller, has been leading his squad of four privates down Silterstrasse in Berlin, only to be challenged by a captain. The captain is about 50, a slim fellow with sunken cheeks, the outline of his skull prominent above a large white moustache. Truth be told, he looks strangely down on his luck. But Corporal Muller doesn't seem to take that in. Like any man in uniform, the captain looks taller and broader thanks to his boots, smart grey overcoat and Prussian blue officer's cap. His white gloved hand rests casually on the hilt of his rapier. Where are you taking those men? Back to the barracks, sir. Turn them around and follow me. I have an urgent mission from the all-highest command. The all-highest? Everyone knows that means orders from the Kaiser. As the small group march towards Pulitzstrasse station, the charismatic captain sees another squad. You men! Yes, Captain? Fall in behind. The Kaiser himself has commanded it. Yes, Captain. The captain now commands a little army, and all ten soldiers ride the train across Berlin towards Köpenick, a charming little town just southeast of the capital. 
On arrival, the adventure continues. Corporal, line these men up for inspection. Line up, men. Hurry. Fix. Bayonets. It's already been an extraordinary day for Corporal Muller and his men. But we're just getting started. What they're about to do is going to be the talk of newspapers around the world. You're listening to another cautionary tale. Cautionary tales are stories about other people's mistakes and what we should learn from them, lest we make the same mistakes ourselves. Sometimes these mistakes are tragic. Sometimes they're comic. This time I present a comedy. At least I think it's a comedy. And the captain of Kerpenick is going to help me. He has a name, by the way, a name that will soon become famous. His name is Wilhelm Voigt. Remember where we left him? He's outside the town hall of Kerpenick, snapping out orders to Corporal Muller and his men. They're lined up, their bayonets are fixed, and now the fun is going to begin. Captain Voigt's little army bursts into Kerpenick town hall and into the office of the mayor, a man named Georg Langerhans. You're under arrest. The Kaiser has decreed that you are a wanted man. He's in his mid-thirties. A mild-looking fellow with pince-nez spectacles, a pointed goatee and a large, well-groomed moustache. He stands in astonishment. This is illegal. Where is your warrant? My warrant is the man I command. You. Sir? What is your role here? I am the town treasurer, sir. Then open the safe. The cash reserve is to be confiscated for safekeeping, and we shall be examining the accounts for fraud. Kerpenick's municipal safe contains 3,557 marks, 45 pfennigs. Captain Voigt is punctilious about the count. Here is your receipt. Stamp it and keep it safe. It's nearly a quarter of a million dollars in today's money. You two, find Frau Langerhans and arrest her. She will be interrogated alongside him. Treat her with courtesy. Yes, yes sir. sir! Captain Voigt searches the town hall office while his men keep the town officials under arrest. Failing to find what he seeks, he decides to wrap up the mission. The officials are to be driven to a police station not far from where the day's adventure began. There, they'll be detained and interrogated. Captain Voigt himself walks to Kerpenick Railway Station. He collects a package from the left luggage office and steps into a restroom stall. A minute or two later, he steps out again. And he's almost unrecognisable, having changed into shabby civilian clothes. He ambles bandy-legged across the station concourse. This anonymous fellow boards the train back to Berlin, with his uniform neatly folded under one arm and a bag of money under the other. 
He looks over his shoulder as he steps onto the train, gazing out over the station. He smiles. Then he disappears into the carriage. And just like that, the captain of Kopernik is gone. What? What happens next? Well, to hear the rest, you'll have to go and subscribe to Cautionary Tales. They're all good. Because Tim Harford, like I said, is a genius. Hi, I'm Tim Harford, the host of Cautionary Tales. The first season of my show is out now, and it's been such fun creating it with the Pushkin team. From all of us to you, we wish you a very happy holiday season. Stay with us, because next, I'm finally going to answer your burning listener questions about revisionist history. Happy holidays, because it's against the rules to say Merry Christmas. I'm Michael Lewis, host of Against the Rules. Season two of Against the Rules will focus on why the role of coach has expanded so far beyond sports in American life. Everybody hates the ref these days, but everybody seems to love the coach. I'll be back next spring to talk about it. Malcolm here again. I'm sitting by the fire at Pushkin HQ, recovering from a highly unpleasant ride in Pushkin's one-horse open sleigh. What masochist decided it had to be an open sleigh? It's December! Anyway, gather round as we settle in to read your burning listener questions about revisionist history. Now, if you listened to the first two episodes of last season of revisionist history, you may continue to be curious about my score on the law school admissions test. Nope. Not telling you. Okay, question number one. If British Malcolm, Canadian Malcolm, and Jamaican Malcolm were to race, who would win? Interesting question. Uh, Jamaican Malcolm wins the sprints, of course. Uh, English Malcolm wins the longer distances. Canadian Malcolm doesn't win at all. Um, and I'm reminded, I have to tell a Graham Glavel story, Graham Glavel, of course, being my uh my father, uh, when we first moved to Canada from England, my father, an Englishman, was convinced that Canadians were lazy, and he decided to test this. And we lived at the end of a long row of houses on a country lane, and there was half a mile of houses. And so he had a dinner party one night. He invited every one of our neighbors along this half-mile stretch, not because he wanted to see his neighbors, but because he wanted to see at what point would people drive as opposed to walk. So clearly, the first neighbor would walk, right? It's 20 yards. And maybe the second neighbor would walk because it's like 50 yards away. But his point was, at some point, Canadians are so lazy, at some point, someone's going to drive rather than walk half a mile at most. And he wanted to know what was the cutoff point. He was a mathematician. It was important for him to figure out what was the cutoff point to establish the level of laziness in his neighbors. That, maybe in a nutshell, sums up the quiet, dark genius of Graham Blabo, who is greatly missed by the world. Uh, next question. Sugar Kalka asks, how much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? You know, 
My feeling on this is what I've it's always been the same, been consistent since the first time I heard that, which is why is everyone putting so much pressure on the woodchuck? The woodchuck just wants to hang out and occasionally chuck a little wood. And everyone's saying, no, 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 no. You have to perform. We have to measure you. There's like probably some standardized test for woodchuck performance they want. No, let the woodchuck be. Enough already on like high stakes woodchuck performance metrics. Okay, next. Leah asks, do I have a favorite episode? Yes, I do. Well, it's hard. I think Elvis Analysis Parapraxis, the last episode in season three, I don't think I'll ever do one that good again. I think I peaked. Uh, I hate to say it. If you haven't listened to it and you want to know what's going on with revision history, that's probably a good... Well, it, don't start with that because every other episode will be disappointing. Wait until the very end of revisionist history when I'm 98 years old and I hang it up and then listen to it so you don't have uh, a, a big letdown when you go into my other ones. Um, Gabrielle asks about my mom. Why has Joyce Glabel not appeared on revisionist history? Um, very good point, Gabrielle. Um, I have been thinking long and hard about how to remedy this um, because my mom, in addition to her many other extraordinary traits, um, has a lovely voice. She's the greatest voice of all time. Very low, very quiet. She's like five feet tall, so you have to lean down to hear her. This is what happens when you call uh, every single time I've called my mom for the last 50 years. This is what's happened. I call, and she sees that I've called, and she goes, Malcolm, how lovely to hear you. And then, doesn't matter. It could be I talked to her earlier in the day, or I haven't talked to her for two weeks. Same. And then this is how she ends the conversation. She goes, when she's had enough, she goes, goody good. <laughs> All right. And a lot of questions about Jesuits. Particularly, somebody asks about my statement that I'm a uh, Catholic wannabe. This came from my one of the Jesuit episodes in season four of Revisions History. Um, you know, funnily enough, my friend Jim, Jim Leptisen, who's a Mennonite pastor, who I actually saw yesterday, uh, we went for a long walk, and Jim expressed a little bit of uh, concern about my statement that I was a Catholic wannabe. He thought I was a Mennonite wannabe. So everyone's mad at me out there in the world of uh, pastors. But he did, Jim did concede, and I'll give this to Jim, he's a very generous man, that uh, Jesuits, when you hang out with them, they're so impressive that it's kind of hard not to want to be one of them. All right, last question from Obi Kenobi. He points out that, that Matt Damon was on Bill Simmons, the Bill Simmons podcast uh, this past week. And in it, he references a revisionist history podcast calls me out by name to talk about uh, something that was said in the Toyota Sudden Acceleration podcast from season one. And Obi Kenobi wants to ask, how do you feel when Matt Damon uses you as a reference? And the answer is amazing. I mean, I remember where I was when I heard that. I was in the gym in the Hollywood Equinox on the treadmill, and I'm listening to Bill Simmons, and there's like Matt Damon name-checking me. How great is that? But I will say this, it is not the greatest call-out, religious history call-out ever. I'm sitting in a restaurant, and my phone rings, and you know how it, sometimes it says, unknown caller, or no ID? That's like, because it's coming from some 
stealth place. Well, there's a higher one, a more a more stealth one, which is like some gobbledygook thing, like blah, 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 right? So I see blah, blah on my phone. I'm like, oh my God, what's this? I answer it. I go, hello. And I hear a voice that says, Malcolm Gladwell? And I go, yes. And the voice says, Barack Obama. Absolutely true. Barack Obama called me on my cell phone to say how much he liked an episode of Revisions History. It does not get better than that, ladies and gentlemen. High point of my life. There were many, many more wonderful listener letters, emails. And uh, next year, maybe we'll devote an entire episode to this. I don't know. Depends on what all of my handlers, my betters say. But um, it was lovely to hear from all of you, and I hope I have enhanced your listening experience with these answers to your questions. Thank you. Hey there, this is Lori Santos, the host of The Happiness Lab. I had so much fun creating the first season of this podcast, and I just wanted to thank you for being part of it, for all your amazing reviews and feedback. I've really enjoyed becoming part of the Pushkin family this year, and I can't wait to see what else is in store. So let me end by wishing you a happy, no pun intended, holidays. I look forward to seeing you in 2020. Hey, this is Justin Richmond from Broken Record wanting to wish all the Pushkin listeners a happy holiday season. I hope you've had as much fun listening to our podcast as we've had making them. Here's to 2020. Let's get it. I have a friend up in Hudson, New York, Tamar Adler. Tamar has written some incredible books about food, including An Everlasting Meal, Cooking with Economy and Grace. She's been a cook at the famous Chez Panisse in Berkeley, but more than any of that, she's just hilarious. And over the years of talking and eating with Tamar, I've come to wish that everyone could meet Tamar. And now you can. In her new series from Pushkin called Food Actually, it's on Luminary, And in this part, she gets me to try Georgian wines, and that's not Georgia as in, you know, Atlanta. That's Georgia as in former Soviet Union Georgia, with a very cool guy named Steven. Now I'm looking at this and I'm not, I think I might be able to shoehorn this in as a, this is not white. So (laughs) it's sort of biracial wine. It sort of suits my personal preferences. There you go. It's the U of wine. It's the me of wine. (laughs) The colors of natural wine and of the Georgian wine Stephen is serving us aren't binary. They're not red or white. I mentioned this before. These wines are all different hues. And that's considered a positive attribute, not a flaw. This is totally different from conventional wine, which, like other binary systems, like male or female, black or white, has to be filtered to fit its categories. Conventional wines, white wines, when you press the juice from the grapes, you remove the skins and you just do the fermentation with the grape juice. So you maintain the clarity. But when you allow the fermentation to happen with the skins, then the tannins and the color, the pigmentation will start to show up in the wine. And so you see kind of on a spectrum of color the length of time that the skins have been in contact with the juice of the wine. And why would you not want that? Why would you bother taking the skins out? 
because people like purity, people like things that are sparkly and transparent. So I think there's just kind of like people like things that are really sanitized. And so the idea of like these skin contact wines up until recently was really like a bit murkier. You know, it was uh, not something that seemed as commercially viable based on our own ideas about wine. And along the same lines as demanding that wine be sparkly and pure, red or white, is the demand that wine never change. Which is also the antithesis of being accepting. In flux. Queer. Or at least open. Natural wine, most Georgian wine, the kind that can be any color. It doesn't get stabilized to slow down the fermentation. If you want something to stay exactly the same, oxygen is your enemy. Bacteria, like us, need oxygen to survive. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess in the context of wine, the biggest thing, the biggest impediment is oxygen. It's just like fruit, right? So if you cut an apple in half and you eat half in the morning and then you go to work, you come home and then the apple's oxidized. So Turn brown. That's right. So the same thing is true with these basically raw wines. I'm fine with when apples turn brown. I don't throw that apple out. I eat it a little brown, or I save it till I have a lot of brown apples, stressing me out, and late at night, at the last possible moment, I make applesauce. I tell Stephen this, and he calls me a benevolent eater. Maybe I am. But I don't actually buy that people so enjoy being stuck in pursuit of perfection. I think they're just told that's what they're supposed to do. In wine, in food. But the truth is, perfection is just not that fun. I think most of us would be happier feeling permitted to use brown apples and stale bread. I think embrace of imperfection might not be benevolent to ingredients, but to ourselves. Cheers. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Malcolm suggests that the best route to embracing all the changes that come from leaving grapes with their skins is recasting it as a positive. Like, stop calling it skin contact wine. You could call these this a whole grape wine as opposed to a half grape wine. But when you use the word, which sounds sounds like you'd want the whole grape wine, right? See? He Malcolm Gladwell's skin contact wine. Whole grape wine sounds so much better, like a whole food, a whole grain, whole milk. Who wouldn't want the whole grape? Yeah. Should we take a sip? Yeah, let's take a sip. Okay. Now that's that feels a lot less uh that feels a lot less unusual. That feels a lot more like a the kind of white wine which I rarely drink because of my five rules, but it <laughs> se- seems conventional, more, more conventional, not conventional, but more conventional than the last one did. That's a perfect assessment. Congratulations, you're a sommelier. <laughs> that was me with Tamar Adler and former sommelier Stephen Satterfield. I was the guinea pig in Tamar's wine tasting experiment. And let me tell you, There are very few actual guinea pigs who get a gig that good. Get yourself on Luminary and subscribe to her show, Food Actually, and you'll hear just what I mean. Now, don't go anywhere because I'm not done with this cozy extravaganza yet. In just a little while, we have a man who seems to think he has no friends. He could not be more wrong. A little special excerpt from my forthcoming interview with the great Conan O'Brien. Stay tuned. I'm Tamar Adler, and I'm the host of the new show, Food Actually, that you just heard some of. 
I'm so happy to have a seat at the Pushkin table, and I want to wish you a calm and happy holiday with this party advice straight from the Bible. It is better to eat a dry crust of bread in peace than to eat a feast in a house full of fighting. In other words, relax. Any meal you're happy at will be great. Hi, I'm Noah Feldman. I'm a professor at Harvard Law School, and I'm the host of Deep Background, a show about the biggest stories in the news and what they really mean in historical, scientific, legal, and cultural context. From the Deep Background team to you, we want to wish you the happiest of holidays. But you know what? I hate the euphemism. Have a happy new year, have a merry Christmas, have a happy Hanukkah, have a terrific Kwanzaa, whatever holiday you like, go for it and enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Bethany McLean, the host of Making a Killing. I've loved hosting my podcast. A big thank you to all of the guests who have come on and chatted with me, and a big thank you to all of you who have listened. I'm back. It's very nice to be in the same studio where I recorded the audio version of my latest book, Talking to Strangers. But the audiobook isn't just my voice. I wanted that book to sound more like a podcast for listeners to hear the people I interviewed, even to imagine scenes from courtrooms or labs that I write about. So we pulled out all the stops of Pushkin Industries to produce a three-dimensional, no, four-dimensional audiobook that I am so very proud of. Talking to Strangers is on Audible now. I've done a lot of interviews for Talking to Strangers, trust me, a lot. But I don't think I laughed more than when I did the podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Here's a bit of our conversation, which will air December 16th, in which I set off on a little hobby horse of mine. The in-person job interview should be abolished. Why am I doing a face-to-face? So in the face-to-face encounter, what am I finding out? I'm finding out whether they're tall or short, whether their hair is dark or, you know, not how well they dress. None of this is of any relevance whatsoever, right? None. There are, to be my assistant, basically, they don't even, I don't work with them. They work at a coffee shops. They email me stuff. They have to be, they have to reply instantly. They have to be super organized. They have to be nice, good, honest people. I'm what so is, glad you brought up this topic because you oh, are in the room oh, with oh, my no. assistant. Okay. And I hired my assistant 10 years ago. And uh-huh. I will tell you that I met her. Uh-huh. She seemed responsible, okay. prompt, yep. yeah. courteous, yeah. Uh, professional. Yeah. And uh, it affirms everything you've said. I was completely hornswoggled. Okay. <laughs> a word that's never used much. Uh, I was dreading this. The second you talked about hiring an assistant, yeah. I was like, please don't say anything. But I will say, I will say that. Uh, I <laughs> did you need wait what, what information did you gather from the face to face encounter? You know it's funny. I was completely duped, <laughs> but uh, and it's not Sona's fault. But it was I needed to hire an assistant. I was coming here to Los Angeles. My New York assistant did not want to move. She had a family, so I was hiring a brand new assistant. I met with I think ten assistants uh, mm-hmm. candidates in one day in some office in Burbank. And the stuff that you'd think I could take away, like, is she tall? Is she short? I even got that wrong because I was, uh, 
I forget what happened, but I think she came into the room and sat down on this couch and it's a very low couch with soft cushions and she sunk into it. So I had this conversation with you. Yeah. And I remembered, um, and your hair was like all puffed out because of humidity or something. Okay. So I thought, so at the end of, come on, come no, on. but seriously. So at the end of the day, <laughs> you get me. I ended up, I ended up hiring her and people said, well, what's she like? And I said, well, she's this very short woman with a big, massive bush of black hair. <laughs> And her name's Sona Movsesian, I think. I can't pronounce it. Armenian. I am. Yeah. Nice. And then. Thank oh, you. Oh, oh Thank nice. Thank you. Nice for Armenia, but, but down with the Irish? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Persecuted people. I mean, I know. Yes. Now I know yes. you guys have your own story. But can I tell my. Yeah, no one ever persecuted <laughs> the Irish. No I love how you just reduced Irish history to, yeah, you guys have your own story. Yeah. Can I tell my favorite? They wouldn't let us have a potato for 800 years. Wait, wait. Are you, are you, are you um, when you're finished with this story, <laughs> that's embarrassing your assistant. Yes, we're finished. I'm done. I'm, we're done. Finished. I'm just saying we're that finished. she's it's not, finished. she's very tall, and uh, it's, I, I even got the visual cues wrong, as well as her character we're totally, we're totally finished. wrong. But Moving anyway, we're done. On. Go ahead. Moving on. Moving on. Oh, I want to tell my all-time favorite Irish story. <laughs> yes. All right. This is pressure. Am I allowed to do this? Yes. Um, I was very, at one point in my life, into uh, the Troubles, the story of the Troubles, yes. the IRA. And we call them the Troubles. The Troubles. In a footnote to a truly great book on the IRA, the following story is told. During the, at the end of the Second World War, there was a British informer who was very, very high up in the IRA, and he was found out. They discovered he was so. They immediately spirited him away to a cottage in the you know, off in the countryside somewhere, and they interrogated him and they wrung an, a confession out of him, and uh, they asked him to write out his confession. Now I should stop and say this story is based on a deep affection I have for the. Irish people and for their extraordinary literary legacy. As mm -hmm. you know, it's some of the greatest literature in the world. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So he is asked to write his confession. He says, you know, will you give me time? And they say, yes, absolutely. And so he's, they capture him in, I think, May. And <laughs> like where it's going, yeah. When he is finally rescued by the British in November, yeah. he's still working on his confession. <laughs> But it's so, a beautiful it's so, story. So, but imagine this. You're like a hard IRA guy, and you've got this traitor in your midst who you busted. And he's like, every morning he like sits down, you know, with his pen and paper and is working on another draft, and everyone's fine with it. Yeah. They're like, I, you know, writing is a difficult process. <laughs> At some point he must have been blocked, and they were very understanding. Because yeah. even James Joyce, you know, went through a difficult period. Sure. So they're all... It's That's a, fantastic. It's a supportive literary community, and it goes on for six months. It's just... I just... How can you not love the Irish when you hear that story? Exactly. How indeed. Thanks again to Conan O'Brien and Team Coco for having me on their show. I hope you've all subscribed to his podcast. And if you haven't, put down your eggnog and do that right away. Our cozy hour is drawing to a close. Time to gather back around the fire, and if you look out into the night and see candles burning far off in the distance, that's all of us at Pushkin Industries, working late into the night to bring you even more entertainment in the new year. Of course, season five of Revisionist History and a second season from Lori Santos at the Happiness Lab, more A Broken Record, and our producers are also working on a fantastic series about an undercover FBI agent who somehow helped bring down a dictator. Not to mention 
the second season with Michael Lewis of Against the Rules, and a new show from the historian Jill Lepore, plus another from the novelist Hari Kunzru. And that's just the beginning. If you want to find out when these shows and more are coming your way, sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. And thanks to all of you for listening. None of this would have been possible without you. Oh, and don't get into a one-horse open sleigh under any conditions, no matter what the song says. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. No! Friends don't let friends ride in one-horse open sleighs. This special Pushkin Variety Hour was produced by Emily Rostek and Heather Fain with Julia Barton, Jason Gambrell, and Carly Migliori. Special thanks to the whole Pushkin team. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Malcolm Gladwell. 